0: So our lesson we've been teaching is called Building Revival, a study of post-exilic Israel. That means Israel after the exile into Babylon. They were carried there because of their sin. And, of course, everything we teach with the Old Testament, we always will pull over to the new with allegory. And, of course, we, we can say that when you get into sin, it will take you into captivity as well. You can be bound to pornography. You can be bound to overspending. You can be bound to food. Anything you can't quit, you're bound to. Anything you cannot escape, you are bound to. That might be Facebook. That might be entertainment. That might be sports. That might be worry. And so if you're not careful, anything you give yourself over to too much, you will be bound to. And Dr. Barclay asks folks that they say, well, I can quit smoking anytime I want. Prove it. I can quit anytime I want. Prove it. I can change anytime I want. Prove it. Or is that just a cheap excuse? So post-exilic Israel, this refers to Israel after the exile. And with this lesson, we're going to look at Persian history, the Samaritans, and syncretism. So there's a big fancy theological word, not Samaritan and not Persian, but syncretism. We're going to cover that. So let's jump into our lesson here. The total span of the post-exilic revival was approximately 107 years from 538 BC until 430 BC, and this revival included three major waves. We're looking at the story of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah because it was a massive revival that lasted 107 years. That's pretty good revival. Uh, Here in this country 20 years ago, we had a revival in Brownsville It lasted about five years. Can you imagine a revival that lasted over a century? It did have its hiccups and it had its opposition. That's one of the things we're going to study. But can you imagine a revival? Technically, this revival lasted till Jesus Christ came. That's four hundred years. And so we we get excited because there's a move of the Spirit that lasts a month. We get excited because we go to a Holy Spirit conference. That's three days. We're talking about a sovereign move of God that lasted from basically five thirty eight until Christ was crucified, and then Pentecost happened. That's a long revival and a long moving of God's spirit. So this revival had three waves. Number one was Zerubbabel's remnant and the second temple construction. Number two was Ezra's remnant and the spiritual reforms he brought. And number three was Nehemiah's remnant and the wall construction. And by remnant, we mean the group of people he brought out of exile or these men brought out of exile with them to Jerusalem to do a mighty work. One of the things we want to point out over and over again, God delivered these Jews. They're not technically Israelites because the Israelites were carried away into Assyria. These were Jews from the tribe of Judah. The Lord delivered these Jews for work. Every time they left captivity and they went to Jerusalem, it was to do work. Now, unfortunately, in the kingdom today, people get saved and then they stop. They come to church and they do nothing. But one of the things we see with this revival is work, work, work. Not work to be saved, but as we can see here, work because they are saved. They are delivered from captivity. Zerubbabel came out with nearly 50,000 people to work, to build a temple. And Ezra came out with about fifteen or 1,800 people to bring about spiritual reforms and clean up Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah came out. The Bible doesn't give us numbers, but they estimate another 45,000. He came out to build a wall, work, and bring about more cleansing of the city of Jerusalem. So we see this pattern over and over again. When you get saved, it's just the beginning. And we might even ask, are you truly saved if you're not excited or participating? We we pray with folks all the time. Our evangelism teams go out. Folks get born again. We never see them in church. Folks come to church. They never put their hand to the gospel plow. You, You gotta wonder what's going on. It takes work to build revival. That's why I call this building revival. Revival doesn't just happen, revival is the answer of God to people's prayer. Even with the Brownsville revival back in the 90s in, in Pensacola, Florida, all the work it took, they went through building projects to house the revival. They started a Bible school out of the revival. It was work, 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 but God just kept moving. It got goofy. Wildfire always jumps in different directions, sure, but it was God. And if we want revival, we've got to be willing to do whatever it takes. As the great men of God have said, revival, when revival happens, you don't have to figure out how to get people there. You have to figure out how to make them go home. When revival hits, you don't have to advertise it in Charisma Magazine or TBN or on the websites. When revival happens, word of mouth spreads it. And you don't have to worry about uh, advertise the guest minister. They don't care who the guest minister is. God's showing up every service. We want to be there. It doesn't matter who's the popular preacher. And that's what in America, that's what we have to do. We have to bring in the popular preacher to pack the house out. That's not revival. That's marketing. That's popularity. When God shows up, it doesn't matter who's in the pulpit. We're here for God and we know God's going to move. Amen. So I lets you know we're not really in revival yet. We're working. And honestly, this is a good test of faith. Will we be faithful, though the Lord doesn't seem to be anywhere near Will we be faithful when the Lord is not present? Now, we know he's present, but not like in a revival. We understand he's here right now, but we're not in revival. All right? So this period of, of Israel's post-exilic revival, it covers six Persian kings, and I want to look at that. It's, it, it, it'll help you to understand these kings. This period of time also witnessed the rise and fall of six Persian kings. Now it was Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, the Chaldean who took Israel or excuse me, Judah captive, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. But at the end of his reign, he was defeated by Cyrus, the Persian. So we switch from a Babylonian empire to a Persian empire. They were slaves to Babylonian rule. They were set free by Persian. Okay. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel three times or to Jerusalem, ransacked it, pillaged it. And over 30 years, he just emptied it of its people and butchered people and emptied its people and butchered people. And the third time, he just finally said, I'm tired of this. He completely destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, the walls. There's nothing left. It burned it with fire. And that's when they were in exile for 70 years. When Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom came to an end, he was defeated by a man named Cyrus, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. He's actually Cyrus II. But he started the Persian Empire. So Cyrus, and you see his dates there, 538 to 529. This is the first king to release the Jews. He fulfilled, we covered this last week, he found himself in Isaiah's prophecies. He fulfilled scripture. He let the Jews go free. And he commissioned Zerubbabel, also called Sheshbazar, to go build God a house. After Cyrus came his son Cambyses, Cambyses uh, was from 529 to 522. He is known, he's not mentioned in the Bible, but he's known in antiquity for conquering Egypt. Uh, he is alluded to though in Ezra 4.5, where it says that the adversaries of the Jews persecuted and harassed them from Cyrus even unto Darius. That covers five kings. So he's not mentioned by name. Cambyses is not mentioned, but he is alluded to. Then you have Pseudo-Smyrtis-Guamata, pseudo Smurtis, Guamata. He claimed to be the son of Cyrus. He actually was a fraud, and he took over when Cambyses was in Egypt doing his thing. He only ruled for seven months. An imposter who took the throne from Cambyses while he was in Egypt only ruled for seven months, not mentioned by name in the Bible, but alluded to in Ezra 4-5. All the kings from Cyrus to Darius, okay? Then we come to Darius 1, Histapses. Okay, this is Darius of the book of Daniel, He seized the throne from Smyrtus, And there's a lot of historical arguments. Did he make up the story that Smurtis was really a fraud so he could seize the throne? Or uh, was he truly a fraud? Was Smyrdas truly a fraud? He took the throne. And this was the Darius from the book of Daniel. This Darius recommissioned the building of the second temple. And we cover that in Ezra. We'll look at that in the days ahead. Then you have Xerxes 1, also known in the Bible as Ahasuerus. This is the Xerxes that married Esther. This is the Xerxes from the famous battle of Thermopylae. He is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, A letter of accusation against the Jews was written to Hazarus by the Samaritans in order to hinder the work. The Samaritans, when they couldn't harass Israel enough, they would write letters to their kings. And Ezra 4 covers about three letters. And they would always write letters of accusation. Uh, There will always be opposition. Anytime God wants to do something, you will always have opposition. Always. If, if they can't oppose you face to face, they'll go slander you to your mama. If they can't oppose you face to face, they'll slander you to your best friends. The, God's enemies will stop God, God's people at any possible chance. And you just have to be prepared for it. You have to be prepared for opposition. What I say is, God forbid the opposition come from within. Don't be the Judas. <laughs> even, even Satan was able to infiltrate Jesus's tight quarters, and produce a Judas. And Dr. Barclay teaches there's always a Judas in training. That demon is always wanting to get into every church, every fellowship, every evangelistic organization. You just have to make sure it's not you. Satan's always trying to get on the worship team. One man of God said Lucifer fell from heaven and landed in the choir loft. We'd say he landed on the worship team. (laughs) So you have to resist all that. So that's Xerxes. Uh, Then you have the final king that the Bible deals with is Artaxerxes, Longanimus. He ordered any work on the city of Jerusalem and its wall to be halted. So that was his first decree, stop the work. He received letters from some idiots in Samaria and he said, you're right, this is a wicked group of people. They overthrow every ruler over them except their own kings. They kill their own prophets though. This is, you're right, Samaritans, Uh, these Jews are a rapscallion group of fellows. Tell them to stop. All right, that was his first order. But then granted Nehemiah permission to return to Jerusalem and complete the wall. This explains why Nehemiah was so nervous about asking Artaxerxes for permission because he knew some years earlier Artaxerxes had ordered the wall to stop. And now Nehemiah has to go and ask for permission, basically saying, Mr. President, can you reverse your policy on Syria? And how does that make the president look when for one cupbearer he reverses his policy. That's why Nehemiah was so nervous about it. Artaxerxes had ordered the wall stopped. The Samaritans took his order a little far. They began to ransack the city. Nehemiah hears that the wall that had been restarted is under destruction again. And he, he loses hope and peace because the city was being rebuilt. But his king, who he loves dearly, who he serves, made an order tell them to halt the work on the city and the wall and the Samaritans, the Bible says, took it by force and power. They forced the Jews to stop. And so apparently they destroyed a lot of the work that was done. And Nehemiah, when he hears that, he, the Bible lets us know he prays for four months before he approaches Nehemiah and says about that whole wall thing. Can we reverse that order? I'd be a little nervous too. So those are your six kings, Cyrus, Cambyses, Pseudo-Smyrtus-Guamata, Darius I, Xerxes I, and Artaxerxes I. Those are the ones that the time of the exile deals with. There were other kings, and then the Persian Empire becomes the Medo-Persian Empire. It dries up and switches over into other empires. So I want to look at the sources of opposition. Anytime God begins to move, there's always going to be opposition. We understand that. As Zerubbabel and the children of captivity returned to Jerusalem to fulfill many Bible prophecies, their enemies arose to thwart them. The devil will always oppose the servants of God in any way possible. The Jews had to endure opposition, hostility, and slander for six kings. We can't even stand slander for three days on Facebook. We can't even handle a professor being rude to us for a semester. We can't even handle mom telling us what to do for a weekend. And here the Jews, they were so excited for God, they endured this for six kings. That's a lot of leadership changes. We complain when the president isn't what we like. It didn't stop these guys. They kept on building for God, even when the king was against them. It just lets you know, you can complain if you want, or you can get to work if you want. And I suppose if you're working, you have the right to complain. But unless you're swinging something, helping something, shut up. Work earns you the right to voice your opinion. The most opinionated people are the ones that do the least. And we call them Monday morning quarterbacks or Sunday afternoon pastors. One, one pastor said, what most Christians have for lunch on Sundays: roast pastor. Doesn't affect us. God still has his hand upon us. We still march on and your life goes miserable. So there's always going to be opposition. The Jews never had trouble from the Persian kings 900 miles away. The kings never did anything to them. They would issue decrees, sure. But the kings themselves never rode into Jerusalem and, and attacked them. The Persian kings just wanted to rule the kingdom. They had problems in Egypt. They had problems in the northern parts. The kings just issued decrees. It basically just said stop. Tell them to stop. But the, the folks that provoked those Those decrees were the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were the ones that always thwarted Israel over and over again. Almost all of their problems came from those closest to them, the Samaritans. It is important to have an understanding of the Samaritans and their history. And this is where I want to pull into types and shadows or allegory. The Samaritans were their half-brothers. And you, you, could, you could argue this way. Your family is always going to be some of your most, your biggest opposition. We might say extended family. We might say a brother in Christ who's not fully committed to Christ. The heathen, hey, you guys go to church, cool. Would you pray for me? Blankety blank blank, my mother's dying in this blankety blank cancer. Could you pray for me? It's always the backslidden, lukewarm, milk toast Christians that oppose revival. So I want to give us a history of the Samaritans. We covered this a little bit last time, but I went in more in depth and I think it's important. It'll unlock a lot of stuff in the gospels to you, but you'll also see the same demon that's at work. There is still at work in the church today. So let's look at the Samaritans here. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom during the time of Israel's divided kingdoms. Jerusalem was the southern capital, all right? We covered this before. After Solomon, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, all right? That was part of the, the judgment on Solomon for being a pervert. He couldn't, he couldn't keep himself to himself, He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He broke Deuteronomy's law that says kings will not multiply wives. He broke that. He said, I I see that law and I break it 700 times. He even admitted in Ecclesiastes, I kept nothing from myself that I wanted. Apparently to a thousand women. How can you even take care of one? But so judgment fell on Solomon and the Lord actually stripped the kingdom from him, but he said, nevertheless, for your father David's sake, I'll leave a remnant, Judah. And then Benjamin was later part of it. So the southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, where the temple was. The northern capital was Samaria in Israel, all right? The northern kingdom experienced several rounds of deportation by several Assyrian kings, known in the Bible as Pool Tilgath-Pileser, Shalmaneser and Sargon II. I know these are fancy words. Thank God you won't be tested. But I have spent probably 100 hours researching this in the last three weeks. You're going to learn it. And this does apply to you. It's in the Bible. These are the scriptures, again, Paul told Timothy, this will make you wise into salvation. Plus, it makes you smarter than the average Tennessean. What did you learn in church Sunday? Persian history. You mean there's more than just cats and rugs in Persia? A lot more. Those that were carried away into Assyria came to be known as the Lost Ten Tribes. I think most folks have heard about the Lost Tribes of Israel. It's because they never came back. The northern half of Israel was so wicked, they never had a good king. They always worshipped all these wicked demons, and God was basically done with them. And he let them be carried away. When they went into Assyria or Asher, they intermarried and totally defiled their bloodline. And I'm sure there were pockets that kept pure, but probably not most. Probably just a small exception. And so then also, the kings—they was, was what the Assyria did with the land they had possessed. They imported their slaves from other countries to repopulate it to completely wipe out the Israeli people. Brilliant when you want to totally break down a civilization. And that's what they did. They brought in people from Babylon, the Cuthites; They brought in people from Assyria. They brought in people that they had conquered all over. It was the Assyrian Empire. And they were mixing and matching so that there were no distinct people groups. Because then you can't rise up and conquer them. You're, you're intermarrying. There's no, it'll take you centuries to develop a civilization to form an army to overthrow your, your captors. It's, it's a brilliant empire strategy. In America, we just brought over blankets full of smallpox and had superior firepower. Back then, everybody was pretty much equal. So Sargon and Asnapur, also known in history as Ashurbanipal, these folks, the Bible says, repopulated Israel with foreigners. History teaches us that. The Bible teaches us that. These foreigners intermarried with the remaining population of Israel, producing a group of people known later as Samaritans from the capital of Samaria. All right, now now you can start to kind of think about what you might know about the Samaritans from the Gospels. Brother Hagen, whenever he preached it, he was a little rough in his one term. He said, these were half-breed Jews. That's a little rough way of saying it, but it gets the picture across. Yeah, they had Jewish blood in them with a whole lot of other blood. But it also explains part of the reason why the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But what we're going to get into here is what we call uh, syncretism. The greatest sin of the Samaritans was syncretism. We'll cover that here in a minute. They mixed the worship of Jehovah with the worship of the gods of the home countries, of their home countries. Look at the second Kings 17, and you can read that whole chapter to get a more full picture. A lot of these passages I abbreviate for time's sake. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling that they feared not the Lord, talking about the foreigners who were repopulated into Samaria. They feared not the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. How do you like that? You don't honor God. He sends lions to visit your tent. Therefore, they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land, Jehovah. Therefore, he, h- he hath sent lions among them. And behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, carry there one of the priests whom you brought from there and let them go and dwell there and teach them the manner of the God of the land. Howbeit every nation make gods of their own. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away thence. Until this day, they do after their former manners." So you see the picture there. Oh, we have one of their priests. Send them back home to teach them how to serve that Jehovah. You got to know it wasn't going to be a half-hearted religious experience. I mean, it wasn't going to be a full-hearted. It was going to be half-hearted. All right, if you don't want the lions, come over here. All right? This is how you have to do it. So all they did was just mix it in with everything else. Why not? They're not partial to any gods. They're like Hindus. They got to just add another god to it. This became the religion of the Samaritans. They served Jehovah... But everybody else, they only serve Jehovah because they didn't want the bad. Sounds like a lot of Christians. I only go to church because I don't want the bad. I pray because I don't want the bad superstition. They don't truly serve God. They just throw incense to him because they don't want the bad. Here, rub a bead. Here, give it an offering. God's who you call on when things are going bad. No, God's who you serve your whole life nonstop. This perversion is called syncretism. This is a theological term. It's it's a general term, but it is adopted by theology. Syncretism, the rough definition is the attempted reconciliation or union of different or opposing principles. That's the key. The attempted reconciliation. Or union of different or opposing principles or practices or parties, as in religion, cultures, or philosophies. This is what the Samaritans did. They were trying to synchronize Jehovah with all their other gods. Because they didn't want to be eaten by lions, their enemy. Behold your adversary, the lion. How many Christians do we know in America? How many Christians, you know, how many of you? You synchronize the God of Israel, of the Lord Jesus Christ, with your perverse pagan ways because you just don't want the lion to get you. How many of us, we, we don't fully commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, but he's a God we have on the side with our other gods? Jobs, career, you. Did you know that there are certainly certain people who deny Christ and they say, I am that I am. And there is no other God, but it may be you come to church and serve God. But in your car, you say in this car, I am that I am. It may be with your checkbook, you say concerning my money, I am that I am. And there's no God beside me. Maybe on your job, I am that I am. I am the king of my domain. Maybe in your marriage, I am that I am. At church, God is the I am, but here I am the I am. We really have a lot more syncretism in us than we realize We're always trying to root it out. But now think about other churches. The seeker-friendly thing. The ecumenical movement where they're trying to bring all religions together and find common ground. There is no common ground except that you stand on God's holy ground. What we're being taught now is a wide range of compromise. And look for common ground when everything else that we're not agreeing on is blasphemy and heresy. This is syncretism trying to synchronize God with sin, and God is never going to be in sync. What you have to do in order to sync God with all this other junk is you have to get him out of sync with who he is. We're witnessing a lot of that. We're changing the synchronicity of God. We're getting him out of who he really is to make him line up with this rather than taking all this other junk, either dumping it, burning it, destroying it, or making it in sync with God. God's not going to change his timetable for anybody. God's not going to change who he is for anybody. God is God. He is the all-existent one. And without him, we don't exist. That's syncretism. We see it in the charismatic movement. We see it in the word of faith movement. The word of faith uh, prosperity thing brought mammon into the church and began to synchronize mammon and lust and greed and find scriptures to fit it. All right. Syncretism is the very first concern God had for Israel when they prepared to enter the promised land. Scores, that means sets of 20s, scores of verses forbid God's people from worshiping other gods. Leviticus ten, ten, and 11 says that you may put a difference between holy and unholy. We're watching that not happen. And between clean and unclean in our churches, in our pulpits, even our own lives, we're watching that not happen. You are to put a distinction between this holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Now, if you want to be unclean, be unclean, but don't call it clean. And if you want to be unholy, you're free to be unholy. Don't call it it holy, though. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. This is one of the best commandments of it. Of course, if you, if you were to just search, quote, other gods in the Bible, you'd find about 20 or 25 commandments against it in the first five books. You won't have any other gods, no other gods, no other gods. That's syncretism, trying to have a service with Muslims or sharing your church with a Muslim church, which a lot of folks are doing right now. All in the name of peace. Jesus Christ said, you think I came to bring peace? Nay, a sword. what about my family? Let them walk with God or let them go to hell. I'm convinced more and more that our idea of love is not Bible definition of love. The more I look at it, the more I study it, the more I meditate on it, the more I think about the American church's idea of love. It doesn't line up with the Bible. It lines up with the pot smoking hippie movement. They changed our definition of love 50 years ago and it has become Mainstream. Sivas and I have had a couple discussions about this. You study the Gospels, you don't see any encouraging, lovey-dovey American words come out of Jesus. In fact, he was telling me he was listening to national public radio, very secular. And they had an article, they had a series of things called The Jesus of the Bible is Not Very Friendly. How come the secular world can see that? But we've turned him into this big, huggy Oprah, Dr. Phil Hippie. And we, we use the, the perversion that is in us and we find scriptures to back it up so that we end up perverting judgment. The love of God never perverts judgment. It is, the love of God is unbiased. The love of God has no respect of persons. When you're wrong, you're wrong. And when you're wrong, we're going to find scriptures to deal with it. But a lot of syncretism is we're trying to synchronize American culture with the gospel. Now, American culture used to be based on the gospel, but after the hippie revolution and all those demons invaded America and we brought in all the other gods from the foreign East, the Hindu gods, the Muslim gods, and all that mysticism, the culture of America is no longer defined by the Bible, but the culture of America is trying to define the Bible. That's syncretism. And have you noticed we haven't had any revival since? We had the word of faith revival, but all that was was Teaching. Our last great revival was the healing revival of the 40s and 50s. And then the 60s hit, you might could argue the Jesus movement, but that was just a bunch of hippies getting saved. There were no signs and wonders. But at that point, the gospel began to be synchronized with worldly culture in the greatest Christian nation on the planet. And it's almost like I've told you the story about being in the hot tub in Idaho back in high school and it's hot, hot, hot. And we grab the ice and the snow off the roof and we throw it in the hot tub because it was fun to watch the iceberg melt until it watered our temperature down. The more you synchronize the gospel with the world, you water down the power. Syncretism is the opponent. It's the anti-revival. That's why we have to fight it. Syncretism waters down the power of God. It keeps God from moving. It short-circuits the power of God. It's like throwing water on circuitry. It just shorts everything out. Circuitry's good. Water's good. The two together are bad. Amen. Amen. In terms of true biblical doctrines delivered by the God of Israel, syncretism can be thought of as a mixing of truth with paganism coupled together with the false sense of security that states... Because I have some truth in my doctrine, I am protected and immune from the harm that is normally produced by the lies, sin, and paganism I still retain. We still think we're okay because we come to church. We think we're okay because we speak in tongues. We think we're okay because we once had a move of God in our marriage. We are trying to slow God down. He, you know, he's, he's, he's a Swiss timepiece, if I can say that. Tick, tick 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 we're trying to slow him down to fit our pace tick come on god slow down some more tick the the, the slower in between your ticks god the more i can fit the world in that's syncretism synchronizing god with the world rather than making the world line up with god god will never be able to get the world to line up with him which is why he will destroy it one day and have a new heaven and a new earth so samaritan syncretism Samaritans asserted their worship to be the true religion of the ancient Israelites prior to the Babylonian exile. Preserved by those who remain in the land of Israel. We have the right form of worship. We never left. Not those Jews. We never left. Of course, they don't ever tell the full story. As opposed to Judaism, now we know that term, as, there's Judaism and there's Samaritanism as opposed to Judaism, which they affirmed was related, but an altered and amended religion brought back by those returning from the Babylonian exile. All right, you follow that? The Samaritans say we have the true form of worship for Jehovah, not the Jews. Theirs got perverted in Babylon. But it was in Babylon they developed the synagogues. It was in Babylon they developed the sect of the Pharisees that preserved the law. When Jesus Christ came along, the law was very much preserved. They hadn't changed anything. They'd added some stuff to it, but they hadn't changed the base of it. They they preserved it. Every theologian and historian will tell you, the Israelites were goofed up. The Jews preserved their religion. The Samaritans desired to be part of God's revival, but on their terms and with their underlying agendas. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah resisted them. This holy act of uncompromised resistance fostered hostility between the two nations for hundreds of years to come. The fact that the Samaritans, they're not called Israelites anymore, they're called Samaritans because they've intermarried with all these pagan nations. They're just a big smorgasbord. They're no longer the pure line of race. When Zerubbabel comes back, they say, can we help? And he says, no, you will not help us build a temple to our God Well, we worship Jehovah. We covered this last week. It's in Ezra. We worship God like you do ever since the king brought us back from Assyria. And he said, nope, you are not helping us. And from that moment, the Samaritans set themselves against anything Jehovah was doing. How can you claim to worship the God of Israel when you oppose everything he's doing? How can some of these Christians that we know or these churches that we know claim to be glorifying Jesus Christ when they fight against everything his word stands for? How can they? They can't. It's the same spirit. These churches that are so ecumenical, that means combining all faiths. How can they claim to glorify the God of Israel when the God of Israel is very exclusive? Oh, it's all about love. Jesus taught love and tolerance. No, he didn't. Not the way you define it. He tolerated people just enough to help them. And then he rebuked them. And the Bible says "And he rebuked them because he loved them. Don't get bored because we're talking history. All right. Because they were excluded from participating in the reconstruction of the temple, Jerusalem, and the wall, the reconstruction of the temple, the reconstruction of Jerusalem, the reconstruction of the wall, they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim in Samaria about 50 years after Zerubbabel's temple. They said, fine, if you won't let us play, we'll take our toys, go home, build our own church. Sounds like church splits. We can't control your church, Pastor Chris. We'll go start our own church. Fine. And you call that glorifying God. And we'll slander you while we leave. And we'll tell everybody God didn't call you to pastor that church. (laughs) Fine, go start your own church. You're really good at starting them and failing them. You have more experience than me. You've started more churches than I have, and you have shut down more churches than I have. Yay, you. So they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim Gerizim was very important to all the Jews Joseph was there Josh, uh, uh, Jacob was there Shesham was there which was an important city in the book of Genesis they also developed their own form of worship adopting their own Pentateuch or Samaritan Torah where have we heard that before you make up your own holy book based on the Bible the Samaritan Torah it's, it's even in use today They made the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible Penta being five the Torah, the Samaritan Torah. That contained many significant differences from the Jewish Mesoroteric text. They believe Mount Gerizim was the holy mountain and the location of Solomon's temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Really? The foundation's still there. You can see them. It's only been 70 years. It's like if they destroyed the Parthenon, you could still see where the Parthenon was. How you're going to really convince that many people of a lie. So they built a new temple there, the Samaritan temple to Jehovah and other gods on Mount Gerizim, some miles to the north. All right, Jesus Christ addressed the validity of the Samaritan religion in John 4. And he must needs go through Samaria, Jesus. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar or Sheshem. That was on top of Mount Gerizim. Near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The woman said, I'm abbreviating here. How is it that thou being a Jew ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So she's recognizing the hostility here. It's been in place for 400 years. Also notice this. She could recognize he was a Jew. So they don't look the same. Well, that would make sense. They've intermarried for 400 years. She recognizes he's a Jew. She knows. She says, basically, you know, I'm a Samaritan. You can tell by the way I look, it'd be like white-black relations in the South 50 years ago. Why are you drinking at my water fountain? You're white, I'm black, we don't have any dealings with each other. But Jesus, it said he must needs go through Samaria. He had to, the Lord told him to. Then she says this, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, you worship, you know not what. That doesn't sound like a hippie loving Jesus. He basically just said, you are a dumb woman. All of you Samaritans are lost. Okay, Somebody telling you, you're a Christian, you don't even have a clue what you're worshiping. That's insulting. He assaulted her religious beliefs. She was boasting in her mountain of her fathers, the Samaritans, who opposed the move of God for 400 years. Actually, in about the year 150 B.C., the Jews had had enough of the Samaritans' opposition. They went and destroyed their temple for them. The Bible doesn't record that because it's in between Malachi and Matthew, but the Jews said enough, and they marched in and totally wiped out that temple, which is why it isn't there anymore and wasn't there in this day. But Jesus tells her, you worship what you know. You know not what. For salvation, I like this. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, not the Samaritans. What we're witnessing, folks, we're watching Christianity grow a branch and become so perverted, it's not even Christianity anymore. And this branch is growing out of every major denomination and mainline Christian movement. Word of faith is growing a weird, perverse branch. The Baptists are growing a weird, perverse branch. The Assemblies of God, the Methodists, uh, everybody because it's the same spirit that's in work at work in the earth as it was in these days. And we're seeing a whole sect of Christianity grow so perverse. They still claim to be Christians. They still claim, I love Jesus and I serve Jesus and I love the Bible. But they're changing their Bible, just like the Samaritans did. They're adding other things to the God of the Bible, just like the Samaritans did. And they'll even erect their own temples or houses of worship, just like the Samaritans did. It, the, the hardest line you see is the universalist church. They have their churches, they call themselves the universalist church, but everything is welcome and open. That's the same demon that spawns Samaritanism. And you understand why there's such, there was such a Jewish hostility against them. It's syncretism, trying to sink the world with God or God with the world, and it doesn't happen. It's oil and water, and the two don't mix. You have to look for it in your own life because it will affect you. You'll start to compromise. You'll start start to make excuses why this is acceptable, why you can cling to that prodigal child when the Bible says, if they're prodigal, let them be prodigal, why you can let pornography in your life, why a little bit of gossip is tolerable. Now, it's one thing to see it and say, Lord, that's sin, forgive me. It's another thing to keep petting it because then it'll have children and then you'll have to pet and feed them like a stray cat. Never take a stray cat in. Stray cats have other cats stop with the one. Amen. It is obvious Jesus Christ did not give any weight to what is called Samaritanism, the religious beliefs of the Samaritans. Now, I like to point this out about, and we, maybe Cephas and I, we've talked about it. We may go through the gospels and come up with all of the not sweet statements of Jesus. Because I really, I don't think he ever told anybody I love you. Run through your knowledge of the Gospels. Can you think of any time Jesus said, I love you? He told Mary, don't touch me. He rebuked Peter. He did these things, but we know it's because he loved them, but he never stopped and said, I love you. We know he did, but he was a lot more straightforward than that. Not only does he attack the Samaritan woman's religion, he also makes fun of her sexual perversion. I shouldn't say make fun of it. He says, go get your husband, knowing full well she's not married, and she has a sordid past, by the word of knowledge. And he throws it in her face to see how she'll respond. "Go get your husband." I mean, what, what, you know, by the spirit of God, she's not married, she's living with her boyfriend, and she's had five husbands, and yet you still ask her to prove her. "Go get your husband." He brings up the two things destroying her life, and the Bible calls that love. Not American, that ain't Oprah. That ain't Dr. Phil. That ain't Dr. Oz. That ain't Dr. Ruth. That ain't even Dr. Pepper. (laughs) That's just God loving people the way God loves people, not the way post-hippie America loves people. He did not cast this woman off as hopeless, but rather prepared her for the new and living way he was bringing. And she becomes an evangelist. She runs back and says to all the guys, come meet a man that told me all I ever knew. But the other thing is it says she was waiting for the Messiah. She said, I know that when Messiah come, he'll show us all things. And Jesus says, I am he. He didn't say that to many people. He didn't even say that to Peter. He said, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But to the Samaritan woman, he said, I am he. I am the Messiah. Hmm. Modern syncretism, let's wrap it up here. It is still anti-revival. In the time of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, syncretism was opposing it and opposing it. If it couldn't have it on its terms, it didn't want it. Syncretism is still opposing revival. This double-minded, mixed religiosity was at the heart of the opposition of Israel's post-exilic revival. We can see this heartened attitude of compromise and comfort Opposing God's current revivals as well. We can see this heart and attitude of compromise, an attitude of compromise and comfort. In America, it's all about comfort. It's uncomfortable to be in church till midnight, it's uncomfortable at church serving, it's uncomfortable to pray. Since when does the Bible promise you natural comfort? Soulish comfort, sure, He's the Holy Ghost, but not natural comfort. When God says move, modern Christians have many pagan reasons why they can't, and yet still believe they are servants of the true God. Today we are witnessing many churches combining the holy with the profane, even as Samaria did. Many self-professing Christians are more secular than they are Christian and still profess they are right with God. They are looking for a church that suits them. How about you find a church that suits God? Why are you looking for a church that suits you? We teach around here. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God sets you in the church as it pleases him. You don't get to seat yourself. Amen. So look at a few verses from the New Testament. James 4, 8. These are anti-syncretism verses. Draw near to God. Every day it says to do that. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you double you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. James said that to Christians. You're double minded, you have dirty hands. That's syncretism. Second Corinthians six, seventeen, eighteen. Therefore come out from among them and be ye separate. No syncretism, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Don't try to synchronize with it. And I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty Lord. Notice you get rid of the syncretism, you get to be sons and daughters. Paul speaking to New Testament Christians. New Testament church, who, by the way, had synchronized adultery in their church with their services. Who had synchronized fornication in their church with their services. Who had synchronized drunkenness in their services with the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians have more rebukes in them than most of the other uh, chapters combined, uh, or epistles, and yet they had the gifts. If it weren't for 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, we wouldn't know hardly anything about the gifts but they had also successfully synchronized the gifts with fornication, drunkenness, and debauchery. And Paul had to write them two letters. Ephesians didn't get a sequel. Actually, the Bible tells us there were three Corinthian epistles. You're messed up when your church has to get three personal letters from Paul. Ephesians got one, Galatians got one, Colossians got one, not Corinthians. Bad. Thessalonica had to get two. We know there was a third one. Because the folks who wouldn't get a job still wouldn't get a job. Amen. Syncretizing. Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? One translation says, oh, you stupid Galatians, who has put a hex on you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has evidently been set forth, crucified among you. There he was trying to get uh, synch- syncretity out of the Galatian church, they were bringing Judaism back in. The law, the works, the, this, uh, uh, the sacrifices. They were trying to find righteousness through works rather than through Jesus Christ. They were trying to synchronize what had been done away with with what Jesus Christ was doing. Verse two goes on to say, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the works of the flesh? Revelation two, these are probably the best two verses. I have, this is the church at Pergamos. I have a few things against you, church of pergamos because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of balaam syncretism they're synchronizing the gospel of jesus christ with the doctrine of balaam so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the nicolaitans which things i hate the lord jesus hates these things he hates syncretism he wants his doctrine pure Syncretism is, without a doubt, the greatest thing we are fighting in these last days. It's just You're just trying to mix the two. Have the best of both worlds. We call it fence straddling. Jesus also calls it lukewarm. And he says, when you get lukewarm, I get a runny tummy. I get a sour belly. And I feel like throwing up some Christians. We can't have it. We have to be clean. Amen? Father, I thank you for this lesson on the Persian Empire, Samaritans, and syncretism. Father, bless our studies in this. May we get out of it everything you have for us and keep us clean here. Show us where we're synchronizing the world with you and you with the world, and may we repent of it. In Jesus' name, amen.